book of Acts, very end of chapter 15. If you have been here, Paul has been on a missionary journey with Barnabas, and now uh, he and Barnabas just split last week. Uh, a bit of an awkward moment in the story of Acts, and I'm going to pick up, I'm going to read today's passage from the end of 15 all the way through 16, verse 15, and I'm going to try something here. Because there are so many cities and regions that we're just not familiar with, I'm going to try to use a map here that's going to be, I, I understand you're not going to be able to read a lot of this, okay? I, I understand that, but I at least want us to have a general idea of where we are and what is happening. And so, Let's go ahead and jump in here, Acts 15, verse 36, last Sunday's passage first. Acts 15, verse 36, and this is the word of the Lord. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. If you look at the screen here, remember Pamphylia right here, and that's where John Mark had left to go back to Jerusalem, so that's Pamphylia. Then look at verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. So if you look back at the map, they are leaving from Antioch, heading back to where they had already been, which is Cyprus. So that's where Barnabas and John Mark are heading, and they head right out of the narrative of Acts. We will not hear about them anymore in the book of Acts. We'll hear about them in 1 Corinthians and other letters, Colossians, but they're, they are gone for the book of Acts. So now where are Paul and his new companion Silas going to go? They're going to go north, verse 40. But Paul and Silas, uh, Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So you can see here, these are the churches that Paul would have been a part of uh, soon after his conversion, and those churches there are where he went. If you look at the tail end of Galatians chapter 1, Paul, remember those eight years? We don't really know much about Paul's life that I'd mentioned. He's in Syria and Cilicia, those two regions. No doubt, we know he's preaching the gospel because Galatians 1 says he was preaching there, but Paul doesn't know how to do anything if he's not planning a church. So I think he was planning churches in those areas, and those are the churches that they are about to go see uh, throughout those regions. Okay, chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. So you can see here, they go to Derby through Tarsus, Derby to Lystra, where Paul was stoned nearly to death. A, a disciple was there at Lystra named Timothy a son of a Jewish woman and, uh, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Uh, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily." And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. So if you look here on the map, the southern Galatian churches in Phrygia is this large circle here. Those are the churches that the letter of Galatians was written to. Verse 6, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, just look here. Asia is not what we think of when we think of Asia, okay? This is really Western Turkey today. For whatever it is worth, those seven little dots on the screen there, those are the seven churches that the Revelation, the seven letters of Revelation were written to in Revelation 2 and 3, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Smyrna, Ephesus, and Laodicea. And um, you remember on Thursday nights, I'm just going to throw in some extra information here, okay, because we got it on the screen. On Thursday nights, 
First and Second Timothy, written to Timothy, and where is he? He's here in Ephesus right there. So that's where Timothy is when First and Second Timothy is being written. But strangely enough, Paul is forbidden from preaching the gospel in Asia at this particular moment, so they don't have much of a choice but to go north, and they head up. If you look at verse 7, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So if you look at the map now, Bithynia is up here, this area here. Also, for whatever it is worth, since we've got it on the screen, the councils of Nicaea and Chalcedonia both happened right up here in this little spot uh, in church history in the 300s later. Very important councils about the Trinity, but that's, that's that area. Paul wanted to go up there. He was not allowed by the Spirit of Jesus, and so he passes through Mysia here and ends up in this city, Troas, which was a port city, verse 8. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia. So, look back at the screen here again. Macedonia is that whole region up in the corner of the screen. That's where Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea are. So, verse 10, excuse me, I'm getting myself confused. Verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought… Notice the we, Luke is now there, we. We sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis. So if you look here, you got Troas, Samothrace is this island right here, and then they go to Neapolis, which is the port city of Philippi. They're making pretty good time. The wind must have been behind them to do that in a couple of days was pretty good. It's over 100 miles in distance, and they get to Philippi. For whatever it is worth, Paul has now traveled, along with Silas and Timothy, they've now traveled in the ballpark of a thousand miles, mostly walking, uh, all the way to get to Philippi where we are in verse 12. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony, we remained in this city, Philippi, for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down. Uh, and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Now, just pause again. She's here in Philippi, but here's her home city. Thyatira is over there. So, she's pretty far away from her house, uh, from her home, a couple hundred miles away uh, with, with this business trip here. Verse 14 again, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She prevailed upon us. Okay, that is a lot happening there. So, I'm going to break this down into three points to sort of make this maybe more manageable in our minds, just going with the sections that we have in front of us. Number one, this is all about evangelism and missions here. Number one, Paul's, I'll just, I'll just say two words, evangelistic strategy, number one, and number two, evangelistic direction, and number three, evangelistic fruit. So, number one, evangelistic strategy, number two, evangelistic fruit, excuse me, evangelistic direction, and number three, evangelistic fruit. Now, I love this opening section to Acts 16 for several reasons, but some of it makes you scratch your head the first time you read it. So let's reread the beginning of our passage, Acts 16, verse 1. 
Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. I'll just stop there. If you've been here on Thursday nights, we've been talking a lot about Timothy. Timothy, this is all educated guesswork, okay? Timothy is likely a late teenage age range when this happens, okay? If we're doing our math on where we're at on his life, he could have been between 18 and 21, right around that area is a good guess for how old he was. So, he could have been a late teenage young Christian man. Paul, at this moment, it's hard to know for sure, but based on when he's called a young man and when he's called an older man in, his, in, in the New Testament, Paul's probably in his mid-40s right now. Interesting to know that. So, Paul's perhaps in his mid to late 40s. Timothy is in his late teens, and they immediately have this father-son relationship. Remember from Thursday night, Timothy does not have a believing father. Uh, this should be tremendously hopeful for those of us who have not had the privilege of being raised with believing parents. Uh, I know there are some of you who did not have the privilege of being raised with maybe a believing mother or father. And th that is a great challenge and difficulty in the Christian life. How merciful of the Lord to, to draw you to the gospel and to save you if you did not have that in your background. Timothy had a believing mother, but not a believing father. Now, this means we were told in 2 Timothy, he learned the Bible, the Old Testament, from who? His mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, and they were faithful to teach him uh, God's Word. There's some debate whether Timothy's father is deceased at this moment because of the past tense verb, he was Greek. We don't know for sure. It's hard to be dogmatic, but his father either was alive and not a Christian or no longer alive. We're not sure about that. Here's what we know, verse 2. He, Timothy, was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. So, Timothy was known by multiple churches, his hometown of Lystra and also the neighboring church in Iconium. The believers knew him, and even though he was a young man uh, in his perhaps late teens, he had a reputation for good works. And remember, Paul will later write to this same man, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set the believers an example in speech, in life, in love, in purity. Uh, don't let anyone look down on you. So, if you are younger, let's say in the room you are under the age of 21 in the room of any age, the, uh, Paul would say to you right now, do not for one moment waste your youth in, your, in terms of your spiritual life. Uh, J.C. Ryle wrote a book called Thoughts for Young Men where he says, listen, th there are, th the time of youth is a time where you can do incredible good for the Lord, and it is also a time where it is unbelievably easy to waste time in trivial things so often. And so, if you are younger right now, I would challenge you and all of us, but I would challenge you especially in those younger years when a lot of your friends are obsessed with things that won't matter in five years or maybe even five minutes from now, uh, are you devoting your mind and your thoughts and your life and your emotion to what matters? What is going to matter in 10 years? What's going to matter in 100 years? What about what's going to matter in eternity? D does your life show as a young man or woman that eternity and eternal realities are what is important to you, or is it just you are ensnared by perhaps it's your phone? Now, I, I don't mean to be harsh here, okay? I, I always mention I teach high school students, okay? But, but I'll tell you, they're not supposed to have their phones in class, which, you know, good luck navigating that as a teacher. Like, I can, I can see it under the desk. I, I can see that you're, uh, you're scrolling right now. What, me? Yeah, you're in your left hand. 
you mean this? Yes, please put that away. Okay, so yeah, that happens a lot as a teacher. But I, I will just tell you, I think all of us need to get some self-control regarding screen time in our lives, okay? All of us need some self-control. But I will say if you are young, I think it is especially challenging. If you've had a phone since you were very young and you are just so caught in that trap of every time there's a free moment, you are looking at the screen and scrolling through social media, I would just say, listen, there is a brighter world out there than scrolling endlessly and checking who's liked or reshared or whatever they do anymore on your Twitter or on your Instagram or on your Snapchat or whatever's happening these days. I don't even know. But just, I I would say, challenging to say, are we going to care? Those things are gone in a second. What happened on social media yesterday is gone. Who cares? And yet we consume hours of free time, sometimes on a daily basis, with those things. I don't think Timothy would have looked like that if he was, uh, if if that was there back then. Timothy saw him and he was well spoken of. He was serious about spiritual things from a young age. Let me just add one other comment to that. Ecclesiastes says, you know, remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and you say, I have no pleasure in them. Statistically speaking, those who come to know the Lord savingly do so typically younger in life. Teenage years are very fruitful for conversions. Early 20s are especially fruitful. Once you get to your 30s, numbers drop dramatically. And once you get to your 40s and beyond into your 50s, the number of conversions drops again. And I would just say, in those younger years of life, let us use them to the maximum and redeem them so that we set up habits for ourselves so that we could one day become a Timothy. We we could become someone who is honoring the Lord with our life. Verse 3. This verse puzzles many of us, I understand. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, if you've been around the last couple of months, you're going to be especially going, hmm, what? You remember what's been going on the battle Paul's had for the last few years of his life? What's the whole battle? You don't need circumcision to be a believer. You don't have to adopt the Mosaic law. The ceremonial law is no longer necessary. Paul has been ready to die on this hill. Remember, we won't go there right now. Galatians chapter 2. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He takes the Gentile Titus, young man, kind of like Timothy, brings Titus along with him. He brings him in private before the apostles, Peter, James, and John. And he says, Titus, a Gentile, not a Jew, he has trusted in Jesus. He has repented of sin. He's thrown himself on Christ. He's been forgiven. He's been transformed. His life is renewed in Christ. But he, as a Gentile, is uncircumcised. Do you, Peter, James, and John, do you believe he has to be circumcised and adopt the Mosaic law in order to be right with God? And Peter, James, and John said, no, he does not. And Paul and Barnabas shook hands with them, and they said, okay, we agree in the Lord. Paul was ready to fight over this doctrine. Then you go to Acts 15, which is just one verse. Let's just flip to it. Acts 15, the chapter before. Here's what Paul's battling against in chapter 15, verse 1 of Acts. 15, 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas, they went up to discuss this in Jerusalem. Okay, you can flip back to chapter 16. At that Jerusalem council, did they come up with an agreement? Everybody agreed. All the prominent people, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And anyone who says you have to is preaching a false gospel. And they write a letter written by James, the brother of Jesus, who would write the letter of James in the New Testament later. And what what does the letter say? 
It says Gentiles do not have to do that. And as soon as that is decided, Paul takes that letter, this great news, you don't have to do these things to be saved, and the first thing he does is he has his traveling companion, Timothy, circumcised. And you say, I don't quite follow that. Well, that seems obviously contradictory. I can see how people who didn't like Paul would use this immediately against Paul. And this is where Paul is quite a sophisticated theologian. Uh, if we treat Paul like he's very elementary in his thinking, then yes, this is directly contradictory. But Paul's not being elementary in his thinking. He's thinking deeply. And uh, I'm kind of adapting an illustration from someone else. This is not a perfect illustration because this never happens in real life. But this is an absurd illustration, but we'll just use it for the sake of uh, using it. Uh, imagine that there was a church. Now, this doesn't exist, I'm sure, but let's just, I hope not. Let's say there's a church. And uh, th they believe that you must believe in Jesus and you must dress very nicely on Sunday at church to be saved. All right, you should go, you should, we should, that'd be, we should try that here, right? We should, that'd be the, that's the way you're saved. So, um, imagine that was, the, that was the rule. If you're a man, you've got to wear a suit and tie to be saved. You've got to believe in Jesus, you've got to wear a suit and tie to church to be saved. Well, if, if I were asked to visit that church, uh, I would never wear a suit and tie to that church. Because they, if I wore a suit and tie to a church that said, you've got to wear a suit and tie to be saved, and I wore a suit and tie, I would be contributing to a false gospel. And I wouldn't, I would, you couldn't pay me money to wear a suit and tie to a church that said, you've got to wear a suit and tie to be saved. But let's say that the, 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 they don't believe that. Let's say that they believe the gospel, solidly believe the gospel. It's by faith alone in Christ that we are saved. But let's say that generally people dress very nicely in this church and, and all the men wear suits and ties. And let's say I was asked to speak at the church, okay? And if I went there to speak, guess what? I would wear a suit and tie. Because do you see the difference between those two things? In one case, you're dealing with a gospel issue. They have so misunderstood the gospel that they've added something to Christ. And to, con to, to, to um, continue practicing that very error that they think is added to Christ would be to lose the gospel. So if they say you've got to dress up, you better not dress up if that's what they believe is, is essential to the gospel and salvation. But if it's just the custom of the place, you don't want to unnecessarily offend the sensibilities of the people, and so if you're asked to go there or asked to speak, then you should probably be aware of what people wear, and you should adapt to that environment and be, and, and be adaptable. Now, you see how different those two modes are? That's what's going on here. Some people are saying, you've got to be circumcised to be saved, and when Paul's around those people, he says, never in my life would I do that. But that's not what's going on here. Paul here uh, is dealing with getting the gospel a hearing amongst non-Christian Jewish people. And among non-Christian Jews, what do they know about Timothy? He's half Jewish, and he was never circumcised. His father, as a Gentile, did not let him get circumcised when he was a kid. That has to be why he's not circumcised. So, in order to not offend the Jewish non-Christians that they're going to go speak at their synagogue, in order for Timothy to get access into the synagogue, in order for Paul to give credibility to them as they walk in the door as Jewish men, they need to all be kosher in the sense. They need to, you know, Timothy needs to adopt these laws. Timothy in this moment needs to be circumcised so that they have access to preach the gospel in this synagogue. I hope that made sense. That's a very different two ways of speaking on it. If you hold your spot here, turn to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and you'll get just a really clear parallel passage of this kind of thing. First Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 and following, First Corinthians 9, 19, Paul says, For though I am free from all, 
I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. That's exactly what's happening in our text. To those under the law, that is the Mosaic law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law of Moses, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, do you see here, Paul says, if you're asking me to adapt for a non-Christian to the point of sinning against the law of Christ, not going to do it. If someone says, hey, we're going to go hang out with the people who just lie all the time. You should join us, and to make the gospel more effective, you should lie some. Paul says, are you kidding me? I'm not, we're going to hang out with a bunch of people who are going to be getting drunk a lot. You should go get drunk with them to identify with them. No, no, Paul says, no, 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 I'm not going to identify to the point of sinning against the law of Christ, but I will violate the ceremonial laws of Moses, if need be, to reach a Gentile, and I will then put myself under the kosher food laws to reach a a Torah-observant Jew. Paul is extremely adaptable, and there's a lot of common sense to this. If I'm going to be around a non-Christian, there are certain ways in which I should be sensitive and adapting to their lifestyle and other ways in which I should not. If it comes to moral sin, I should never sin to adapt the gospel. But if it comes to just sort of preferential things, then yeah, I'm not going to go out of my way to be uh, offensive to a non-Christian. I'm going to adapt in ways that are morally acceptable to, to, to make a, an, an inroad for, uh, for the gospel. I'm sure we could say many more things on that, but we must return to our text in Acts and look with me at verse 4 of Acts 16. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were with them in Jerusalem. Now, just pause here. It is likely right before they leave on this trip that that moment on Thursday night happened where the elders of these churches gathered around Timothy, Paul put his hands on him. And they prayed over him, and they prophesied over him, and Timothy was given that gift he was to fan into flame through the word of the, the elders. Almost every commentator thinks it happened right around verses 3 and 4 before he was commissioned out of this church. So they go through the churches of the area, encouraging them. Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, that is not a small word of encouragement to Paul. Those churches are, or they include, the Galatian churches. Now, do you remember the Galatian churches? They were on the verge of losing the gospel altogether just a few weeks ago. And for Paul, it was a year ago. And Paul sent that letter, and then now he's got to go, he got to go visit them. And these, the decision by the Council of Jerusalem in Paul's letter confirmed them in the gospel. So here, here would be an example. You've, led, you've, helped, you've been helping lead someone to Christ. They've just become a Christian, just recently. And maybe they have some drastic moment where they start to question their faith pretty early on, and they, they start to waffle between the gospel and something else. Maybe secularism, maybe another religion, it may just be uh, just believing in nothing, just agnosticism. And, and they're, they're waffling between Christianity and, and, and something else. And you pray, and you meet with them, and you plead with them, and you do all you can, and then you're, you're waiting to find out news, and then you, you contact them, and some time has gone by, and what do you hear? You hear that they are doing well, that they are growing, that the time of doubt has passed, and that they are strengthening in their faith, this would be life-giving to the Apostle Paul 
as he finds out the Galatian churches are strengthening and increasing in numbers daily. So that was point number one, evangelistic strategy. Paul is willing to adapt to his unbelieving audience in order to win a hearing for the gospel, but he will not violate God's law in so doing. Number two, evangelistic direction, verses 6 through 10. We are told, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Now just pause here for a moment. If you notice, it keeps saying throughout Acts, they went, they went, and then all of a sudden it'll say, we went in a minute. Luke, no doubt, meets them at Troas. That's when he first says, we. There's several parts of Acts where we shows up instead of they, which means Luke is an eyewitness. Luke is traveling with Paul. Oftentimes, when there's a sea voyage, Luke is there in the book of Acts, interestingly enough. So, when Luke meets up with Paul, Silas, and Timothy, let's just humanize them for a second. One commentator said, no doubt Luke ran into three men who were weary, uh, disheartened, and perhaps puzzled. Why? Well, if you look at our map here, they've been traveling quite a distance with nowhere to go. So they were able to encourage some churches, but uh, if you look here, they have been traveling for quite some time and unable to really do anything. Once they leave Pisidian Antioch, they just travel up north and all the way to Troas. So we're talking here a long journey on, in northern, what is northern Turkey today with nowhere to preach the gospel. Paul was probably headed for Ephesus or something like that, but he's not allowed to go. We don't know if the Spirit, through a prophetic word, told them not to go, or just circumstantially they just were not able to go, but they are forced up into a no-man's land, and they head between two areas, and they can't preach anywhere. They try to go one way, the Spirit stops them. They try to go north, the Spirit of Jesus stops them, prevents them, and they keep going. So after hundreds of miles of walking and very little gospel preaching, when you're out to preach the gospel, they end up at Troas, and they must be somewhat puzzled and perhaps disheartened and a little bit weary from this journey. You know, it started off so great, and now days and days have gone by, weeks have gone by, and we've had very little happening, and we're confused. We don't quite know what to do. And then this vision comes in verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I, I want to uh, adapt some points here. I tried to come up with my own, but these were just better than what I could come up with. So let me give you, let me adapt four points from a sermon that I read part of that was very, very helpful on decision making. And uh, I'm, I'm going to give an illustration to go along with this from, from our church's life. Number one, uh, you want to pay attention to closed and open doors in life. Number two, you want to use wisdom. Number three, you want the decision to be informed both individually and corporately, just, not just you, but you and others. And oftentimes, God's direction is gradual and um, unexpected. So let, let me try to put all that together with a quick story about our, the, the starting of our church. And I'll just try to make this brief because I could go on and on about this story. But uh, so, I, I very much wanted to, to uh, be involved uh, on staff at a church 
whether pastoring or something in that nature, uh, a while before our church began, and I was just looking for uh, open doors. So, let me put these steps together in my own story. Number one, I'm kind of going in reverse order at this point, it was gradual and unexpected. That is very true. I, the, the idea of this church actually starting was not at all on my radar screen until we got very, very close to, to actually the church beginning. Um, I knew the general direction of where we wanted to go, but I didn't think we were going to start a church. So, the individual and corporate, here's what I kind of mean. I had an internal sense that I really wanted to be involved in teaching, preaching on a regular basis in a church. If I, if I could get that as a job, that would have been a dream to me. I just couldn't imagine that that would be even a possibility, but that's what I wanted. That's what I've been aiming toward for a number of years. And um, there were two churches that looked like they might be open doors for a possible job situation. And so, I knew people at both churches, I had a good relationship, and I was able to teach and preach some at these two different churches, and I tried with everything I could to try to get a job at those two churches. And both churches, at the end of the day, said no. And it's, it's quite humbling. When, when, two, when one church is one thing, but when two churches in a row say no, you're like, well, all right, I think I'm just going to go home. Uh, so, I don't know what to do. So, you, you go, two churches, I thought both churches looked very like they might work for a job. Both churches, in the end, it just wasn't going to work. And so, these two seemingly open doors closed right in front of me, and I thought, okay, uh, what, what do I do now? So, you had two closed doors. That's, the Lord will guide us not just with open doors. The Lord will guide us sometimes painfully through closed doors, and the Lord is no less sovereign over the closed doors in life than He is over the open doors in life. So, two doors close, and I don't know quite what to do. I had an individual desire to preach, and there were, this, is, this was important. Other men came around Jerry and I and started mentioning, this is, felt pretty random to me, a number of men, I mean, it could have been seven, eight, nine guys, I don't know, over the course of a few years, a number of, of men came to Jerry and I and asked us if we had thought about starting a church in this area. That's just interesting. I mean, numerous, one guy took me to coffee. I didn't even know him very well. He took me to Jittery Joe's Coffee. We sat down. He told me, if you guys start a church, I want to help you guys get it started. I'm all there for it. Like, he was, I was like, I've never said a word about starting a church, but he was talking about Jerry and I and, and all this stuff. So, there was, there was this outward testimony from others saying, this could be a good possibility. I was like, okay. And um, doors just started opening. So, the doors I was looking for closed, and then this door started opening. And, and Jerry will tell you, you know, we started asking different things, and every door we knocked on opened up. Every light was not red. It wasn't even orange. It was green. Uh, we, we came to this church. I know we've told this story many times. We came to this church, Central Baptist, on a random day, in the, maybe in the summer or something, and Jerry and I showed up with no appointment. And we just knocked on the door, and the pastor at the time came and talked to us, and we told him, we're like, you know, we're thinking about maybe starting a church. Could we rent, you know, space in this building? And the pastor goes, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. I'm so excited. I was like, he's more excited than we are about this church. And, and so, th just one thing after another, doors just started opening up. So, if I was being honest, I would, I would never have thought about planting a church. I would have thought going to an existing church. That was my goal. That was what I was thinking. That's where I was heading. But the Lord shut those doors, and He opened the door where I was not anticipating and said, no, 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 th this is the way it's going to be. And circumstantially, everything opened up. I had internal confirmation. I had external confirmation from others. And uh, wisdom over time started leading us in this direction. We thought, you know, I think this is the right way to go. Now, we don't have some sort of supernatural, infallible sense of direction. And th these decisions were often made not knowing the next step. We just kind of did what we could do. And over time, it just things opened up and things uh, came together in an extraordinary way. And uh, it was really amazing to be, to be a part of and to watch God's sovereignty in that. But 
not identical. There's something sort of similar going on here. Paul and his companions think they're going to go here, door closes. Then they think they're going to go here, Bithynia, the door closes. And then they don't quite know where they're going. They know they're supposed to be missionaries. They're supposed to be preaching the gospel. Okay, we can't go west. We can't go north. We can't go back. Let's just kind of keep going. So they go through this place called Mysia, and they end up at Troas. And when they get to Troas, after weeks and weeks and weariness and tired, being tired, the Lord gives this dream, this night vision to Paul. There's a lot of these in Acts, right? Paul, Peter on the roof at the house sees the vision and on and on. Stephen sees the Lord at the right hand of God when he's being martyred. And here, Paul has this vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Well, as you can see, they're on the port heading to Macedonia. So they say, let's go. And Luke now joins them, and they head across to Philippi, uh, just across the water. And let's move now to point number three, evangelistic fruit. Evangelistic fruit. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We, we remained in this city for some days. Now, just pause again. Look at the screen. This is what Philippi looks like today. That is, that those are the ruins of Philippi to this day. You can even see that main road going through there is the very road, the Via Ignatia, that was there at the time Paul was there. Uh, people actually think we know that Paul was uh, likely imprisoned. His, his, his imprisonment uh, very likely took place uh, over in this area right here. There's some ruins that look like the, a cistern that was probably the jail at the time. Here's what it looks like by an artist's reconstruction uh, with those walls and the city being as it was and that road running through the middle. That's the city of Philippi when Paul and his companions arrive, here is where they go. And if you see what looks like a little creek there outside the, the, the city, that's not the river very likely they went to. That was not a very… Uh, very likely the river they went to was about a mile uh, to the west of the city. But this is, where they, this is where they arrive, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now just pause here for a moment. Everybody mentions this fact that there was apparently no synagogue in Philippi because Paul's default is he goes to a city and he goes to the Jewish synagogue first and then he talks to Gentiles later. But you needed at least 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. And there is not a mention of a single Jewish man in this story. Instead, it's a group of women, some of them no doubt Jewish, some of them God-fearing women like Lydia, who was not a Jewish a woman but a God-fearer, kind of like Cornelius earlier in Acts, and they've gathered outside the city by some water. So, you can imagine again a little bit of being puzzled. In the vision, you have this man, not a woman, a man saying, please come help us. They get there. There's no man saying, come help us. There's a group of women, not even a synagogue, perhaps not even 10 Jewish men. There's just a smaller group of women praying outside the city, it's sort of under the name of, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. This would have been somewhat puzzling, perhaps. So, on the Sabbath, here they are at this place of prayer, and verse 14 is just wonderful. Let me read it again. Verse 14, one who heard us, so she's listening, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, those were expensive, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. 
in Sunday school last hour, if you were in there, uh, we just covered this exact doctrine, the doctrine of regeneration, of new birth. And you don't get many verses that say it better than this verse uh, right here. So let me just paint the picture. You have a group of women by a river on the Sabbath praying to the God of Israel. She is not yet a full convert to Israel. That's why she's called a worshiper of God. That's very likely what that means. She is perhaps relatively wealthy, a businesswoman. She's perhaps, uh, her husband is very likely deceased, as it happened often, and she is wealthy. She's a seller of purple, which was uh, very, very valuable. Uh, and here she is listening. Now, she's not the only one listening. It says in verse 14, one who heard us was a woman, but there were many who were listening, who were hearing what Paul was saying. We don't get much of what Paul was saying, but we can read in between the lines from Paul's earlier sermons in synagogues. What was Paul saying? He was preaching Jesus from the Old Testament. That's what Paul was doing. He was starting with the Old Testament. He was starting with Abraham and the promises to bless the nations through Abraham. And he would move to King David, and how David was this great king, but flawed. And the son of David would one day sit on the throne, and he would reign forever, and all the nations would come before him and bow down before him. This is all throughout the Old Testament. And as he preaches, he says, this son of David has come. His name is Jesus the Christ from Nazareth, son of Mary. And he was born of a virgin, and he lived the perfect life doing good. And he was hated for his holiness and his truth that he spoke. He was crucified, the most horrific punishment. But that crucifixion did not catch God off guard. It was part of God's plan that Jesus, this son of David, would die a horrible death under God's judgment for sinners like me and like you. He bore the judgment that we deserve. He lived the perfect life that we need, and He will trade places with us if we will turn and trust in Him. And as Paul is preaching some message like that, while Lydia is listening, the Lord, verse 14, the end of verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention, some translations to give heed to what was said by Paul, and she was baptized. This is the same language, by the way. If, in fact, hold your spot just for a moment and turn to Hebrews chapter 2 later in your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, the same word for paid attention, it's a stronger word than just listen, is in Hebrews chapter 2. And in Hebrews 2, the author has presented the gospel in chapter 1, the glory of Jesus is being superior to angels. And then he says this, look at Hebrews 2, verse, verse 1, same phrase for pay attention here as Lydia. 2.1, therefore we must pay much closer attention, there it is, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, namely the gospel, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So here, the mark of a believer is someone who what? Not just listens, but someone who pays close attention to the gospel. Someone who does not neglect their great salvation. A mark of a believer is someone who loves to pay attention to the gospel, to think about, to read about, to study, to talk about the truth of God's Word and the gospel, and to not neglect their salvation. And that is what happens to Lydia. You can turn back to Acts 16. That is what happens to Lydia. So one more time, 
there's the scene. A number of women are present. And like we heard this from last hour, the, the wind of the Spirit begins to blow on Lydia. Maybe not on every woman there, but on Lydia. And suddenly she's listening, but now she's doing more than listening. She's paying attention. She's giving heed to the message of Paul's preaching. In other words, Lydia certainly did turn and trust Christ, but it was ultimately owing to God's sovereignly working in her life. God opened her heart, opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and that's what led to her salvation. What does she do after her conversion? Verse 15, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She opens her home, and initially, Paul doesn't want to burden this new Christian. She, he says, no, 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 we, we don't need to come stay at your house. But no, she urged them, please, if you've judged me to be a genuine Christian, if you've judged me faithful, please uh, do me the favor of coming and letting me show you hospitality. And she welcomed Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, perhaps as well, into uh, her home. Uh, and, and Matthew Henry had this wonderful section on that where he said, she wanted to be near those who would speak of the gospel. She wanted to hear more of the gospel. She wanted in the morning to wake up and have Paul and the others pray with her and for her. She wanted them to better instruct her and teach her in the Bible. She said she didn't just want to see them a couple times on Sabbath. She wanted to see them every day of the week. She wanted to learn more every day from these who had taught her about Christ and had led her to uh, faith in Christ. So those are the three things that Paul does. He has a strategy in his evangelism uh, he is directed in his evangelism, and ultimately, by God's grace, through their faithfulness to preach, there is fruitfulness in their evangelism. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, as we come now to Your table, the Lord's table, uh, we thank You that You have, in the hearts of so many uh, in this room, You have opened our heart to give heed, to pay attention to the gospel message. And that is ultimately owing to Your sovereignty, Your goodness uh, in our life. Uh, we cannot take credit for that, but we are thankful for that. We are so often moved by that truth. And Lord Jesus, thank You that on the night of uh, Your betrayal, You took bread and the cup, and You broke the bread and said, this is my body which is given for You. Uh, eat of it. And you said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many, and partake of that. And as often as you eat and drink, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. And God, I pray that you'd be at work right now as we come forward, as we partake of these elements, and as we return to our seats. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would ask you to refrain from partaking of these elements. That is not because uh, we believe that there's anything magical about them or that they save anyone who takes of them, uh, but the Bible does speak quite directly in 1 Corinthians 11 about the possibility of eating and drinking judgment on yourself for taking the Lord's Supper incorrectly. That's a very serious thing. Uh, but if you have turned from sin, you have trusted in Christ as your Savior and your Lord in your life, and you are not walking in unrepentant sin now or out of fellowship with another believer. If you have turned from sin and trusted in Christ, then in these next moments, come forward, partake of these elements, and return to your seat, uh, remembering what Christ has done and who He is, and that He will come again one day.